Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, iconic songwriter, producer, performer, Eddie Schwartz. He has written and recorded multiple hits and received many well-deserved awards and accolades for his accomplishments. We'll be talking about that as well as uh, his many musical adventures and we'll get him some insights into the Canadian music scene from someone who's been an integral part of it for many decades. So thanks for joining me today, Eddie. How are you? I'm good, Dan. How are you? Well, I'm doing okay. Uh, I was saying uh, in our preamble there, I was I was wanting to have you on for a long time because you're uh, an icon, I guess. Now I don't know how that sits with you as a title, but I think it's well deserved, and you've uh, certainly uh, earned that moniker. Well, I, I thank you very much. That's very flattering, and I, I do um, I do appreciate um, being an icon. Although um, my wife and kids just treat me like that, so <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, around 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 here, I'm just you know, dad or what's his name. Oh, there you go. Hey, there you go. Hey, icon, can you take the garbage out, please? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. uh, I'll I'll ask. I'll suggest that, they, that that's what they call me from now on. But I have a feeling yes. that's not going to fly. Uh yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's always a, a humbling. So you you were born in Toronto, but you're living in Nashville now. Is that right? Yeah, been here yeah. since 1997. Oh wow! But we we still get to claim you as a Canadian, right? That's Definitely, and we we spend the summers in Muskoka, which uh, oh nice, yeah, yeah. I mean, still one of the most beautiful parts of the world, as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, yeah. we're we're back and forth. In fact, we'll be celebrating Christmas uh, in Toronto this year as well. Oh nice. Okay. Well, I was born in Guelph. I ended up in the West Coast here, but uh, so I know that area. So you uh, you were one of those people who had like an early musical experiences like you just grew up i mean we grew up at such a great time like you're a little bit older than i am but uh, i'm right there with you and it was such a magical time but what was your influence when you were growing up take lessons or family influence yeah i mean i i, I my family um my mother was from new york my father was a torontonian so i had a lot of uh, interesting influences from them musically they were very much into the folk Okay. scene of the of the 40s i guess 30s 40s and 50s that grew up in the depression i was there yeah. era and uh, there was a lot of incredible um, you know kind of folk music from people like odetta and pete seeger the the, the weavers um yeah. oscar brand there was just a whole list i won't go through of them nina simone so i grew up in a house where they listened to music that um, meant something and the lyrics yeah. were important the lyrics were delivering a message about social equality and you know uh the, the struggles of uh you know the less fortunate with uh you know the more uh, the more privileged which yeah. of course are still going on today so i grew up in that kind of environment and um and it had a, lo- a big influence on me so i mean i did take some music lessons um i was kind of a failure at the music lessons thing <laughs> um beca- mostly because i would get exercises on guitar or piano and I would just immediately start writing a song. I mean, I'd learn a few oh. chords or, um, you know, learn learn to play something. And then uh, as soon as I had a, like, you know, C, F, and G under my under my fingers on a guitar uh, or banjo. Actually, I started with banjo because Pete uh-huh. Seeker was influenced, as I said. Right. Um, uh, I just would start writing a song. I just couldn't couldn't help yeah. myself. So, And also, I guess Dylan, you know, I, I um, one of my – cousins lived in new york and i would go down to new york and she lived in uh in greenwich village which was at its peak in those days early yeah. 60s and so you know I, I dylan would you know alan ginsburg were walking on the streets in her neighborhood and saw people before they were famous even hmm. you know they were just getting getting their uh you know becoming famous in new york but the, their fame hadn't spread worldwide yet so it was really a, a, like as you said it was an incredible time yeah for incredible sure time. Yeah. To be in New York and, and Toronto and hear the kind of music that was coming out of Yorkville and uh, yeah. Yeah, as I said, New York. So it was, it was very, very inspiring. Yeah, cool. And you make a good point about the music too. You know, I've often said that that music is an art and a science, but it's the art is is the primary. The science serves the art. And when you're taking lessons and you're learning scales and stuff like that, that's boring to me. I want to play melodies. I want to hear things that are emote, you know, emotional things and, and the fun. And we, we know three chords, but you have fun with those three chords. Then you learn a fourth chord and you have fun with the fourth chord. That's the, my musical experience anyway. Wow. You know, four chords. I mean, I, I, I'm not there yet. I'm still working on the same two, but, um, 
I'm, I'm going to learn a third one one of, one of these days, I'm sure. Yeah. But you're going to have fun with the ones you know. That's that's the important part. So Nashville is a town built on the somewhat erroneous phrase of, you know, three chords and the truth. You know, it seems to have worked pretty well for Nashville. Absolutely. But you did take some formal training. Did you do a degree in English and music? Did I read this from uh, U of T? I, well, actually, it was York, uh, York oh, University, yeah. which was yeah. kind of a, a field of mud with a few buildings on it, kind of uh, scattered around <laughs> back in those days. But yeah, I, I, I studied uh, music and, and literature English at, uh, at York nice. in its early days, fairly early days. And I think I was, in fact, I think I was in the very first class of the fine arts department. Oh, wow. Um, so, there you go. And it was a that was a bit of a struggle. Um, again, songwriting wasn't really what they were about. They were more about jazz. It was, it was very much um, the faculty there were very much about jazz. So what I was doing was a little outside what you know what they were teaching. But um, I mean, the most important thing to me is the, some of the people I met there, like David Tyson, who I ended up okay. working with and writing for years, and Fred Mandel, who. Went on to be Elton John's keyboard player and Dallas oh, Cooper, uh, and Queen, cool. all kinds. So these are a couple of Toronto boys who, uh, you know, and other people, Gwen Swick, who you know has been a, a very important Canadian, uh, you know, songwriter in in various bands, quartet, etc. So yeah. it was um, it was the you know my peers that I that I met in those programs that uh, had a lot of influence on my career as I went forward. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because when you get in the, the the sort of incubator of the study, you can become a musical scientist, which really is what most of us not don't want to be, right? We just want to play music for the, like, like you, I think you're quoted as saying that your songs came from the heart, you know, and then that, that's the part of it that's, that's where the magic happens. It's not so much in how fast you can play a diminished scale. It's, it's the heart of the music. I, I couldn't agree more, Dan. I mean, and especially, um, you know, if you came from a background where, like, think about guys like Dylan and Leonard Cohen and, yeah. you know, great Canadian Joni Mitchell. I mean, the lyrics also, um, we talk a lot about the music when we talk or as songwriters, as music creators. But the lyrics, you know, songwriting attracted me. Again, I studied music and, and, and literature. Well, yeah. so that's they meet, you know, songwriting is kind of the place where those two things meet. You know, th- to be honest with you, music has always come to me fairly easily and it's been um it's always the most fun part um yeah. lyrics but the lyrics i you know i struggle with the lyrics but i put a lot of time into trying to get them right and yeah. um so yeah we can't yeah. forget about the lyrical side of things if you're a songwriter as well well for sure and i have a similar experience i i have an undergrad degree in english lit too and i really enjoyed it and i was really inspired by wordsworth who talked about poetry and he said that it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions and i thought well that's what songwriting is you know when he talks about the transference of those emotions and i thought he was talking about poetry but i thought no no that for me that's music mhm absolutely yeah, the, uh, well and you know dylan i think didn't win a, a nobel prize not too long ago although i can't, i don't think he actually showed up to <laughs> to get it, but um, not surprised about his, that, probably right. <laughs> no, that, that's true. His own inimitable way, but um, yeah. but, but I think primarily for his lyrics, I think it was his, yeah. you know it was on the poetry, if you will, side of the equation that yeah. um, that he was honored that way. Well, there's some great lines in in like a Rolling Stone. I mean, there's you know Napoleon and rags and tra- mystery tramp, and he's just got some great images that he evokes when he in his lyrics really good yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more so you you were like thousands of other kids you had stars in your eyes you just wanted to be a rock star you wanted to join a rock and roll band and pursue a career in music was that your goal you know i think um um i guess maybe i was a little a little off the beaten track as far as that goes the um the act of songwriting the process of writing song you know a lot of my friends were out doing sports when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, they were, you know, involved in other kinds of activities. And all I wanted to do was write songs. Hmm. Um, and I never even, I, I mean, I guess I sort of thought my thought of myself as an artist, but it was, again, it was the, the, the act of creating a song was just uh, completely mesmerized me. I mean, I was just completely uh, in love with it. You know, unlike many uh, teenagers, I think I'd, I was struggling with with uh, a lot of emotions and uh, some depression, I think, you know, in, in the early days there, 12, 13, 14, 15, yeah. going through pu- puberty and, you know, where do I fit into, you know, 
You're becoming yeah. an adult. It's a very awkward and difficult period. And I just just compulsively wrote song after song after song. Hmm. And so it was really, it was always about that and about how that kind of helped me deal with my angst about being a young teenager at that point in suburban Toronto and trying to, you know, figure out who I was and yeah. just deal with a lot of, a lot of strong emotions. That's an interesting way to put it. So you, it's, it's kind of a, an outlet for you or a relief valve, I suppose. And then in the, in the process, you become sort of a portal for the songs that you offer to the world that other people get to enjoy. So it's kind of a double whammy. Yeah. I mean, uh, the phrase came to me, um, recently that, you know, you're, you're kind of celebrating your misery, um, <laughs> which of course sounds like a complete contradiction, but I, I think the, I think a lot of the great songs are, you're kind of, that's kind of what they're about. They're about celebrating your misery. And, and the thing is that, you know, we all struggle with different things in life. So yeah. if, if you can celebrate your misery in the sense that you take that, uh, difficult, those difficult emotional uh, challenges you face that, yeah. you know, can be very depressing and can bring you down, but you find a way to turn them into a positive experience. I mean, you know, and I think some of my songs, if you think about the lyrics of and hit with your best shot or don't shed a tear yeah, in yeah. a way, that's what they are. They're kind of celebrating, celebrating well, misery. Or, yeah. Well, look at, um, Fleetwood Mac rumors, right? Probably one of the top 10 albums or 20 of all time, I would think in terms of sales. And that's whole album is about breakup and difficulty. Almost yeah. every song. And, uh, I think about Alice, mm. uh, you know, uh, Alanis Morissette, um, you know, yeah. her, the yeah. album that really broke her huge was about a breakup, a very unpleasant breakup. And there the, you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. A, I think a little bit of anger may have been involved in that one. There, uh, yes, I know. I was. Uh, I, I made the joke at the time. This is angry, <laughs> angry female singer thing, but really good. But just a little bit of anger in there. But uh, so, did you have a defining moment? Did you have a sort of a plan and say, okay, I can do this, and and here's my my defining moment and my plan, or was it more sort of happenstance with you? That's a really good question. I mean, I think at, at various uh, times in my career, I did develop some plans um, of what I was going to uh, try to achieve in a certain time frame. You know, the defining moment for me and and um, something that I was kind of aware, at, uh, aware, at, aware of, excuse me, at the time was uh, was writing Hit Me, Hit Me With okay. Your Best Shot. Yeah. Because, uh, again, I was going through a very difficult period. I, I was was in my twenties at that point. I was, you know, in, in Toronto. Um, couldn't get arrested. Nobody mm. was interested in mm. listening to my music. Um, you know, I'd had a little bit of success. Wrote wrote music for Spring Thaw, which was a, um, a very well known annual, you know, musical comedy review that happened in Toronto every spring. Written yeah. music for that mm. in, in uh, 1970. Uh, so I, you know, I'd had some success. I had had some support. I'd, I'd met Bob Ezrin, who went on, of course, to become incredibly important. But yeah, it, hit me was written at the low point for me. I was contemplating just packing it all in, and I went into therapy, and um, it was a kind of a, a kind of a new age, slightly hippie-ish thing called uh, bioenergetics. Okay. And one of the okay. things we did was was punch pillows to get our um, you know, kind of get our hostility. We're speaking about anger and hostility. Yeah, it's an old uh, uh, gestalt, gestalt therapy kind of thing, yelling at a chair, breaking eggs and stuff kind of thing, right? Yeah, this was along those lines. So I was punching pillows and I walked out on <laughs> one of these therapy sessions and the, and the title hit me with your best shot came to me in it. Huh? But I was, at a, I was in therapy because I was so depressed about the fact that nobody cared, wanted to hear my music. <laughs> and so again, it, it came back in that moment of like complete kind of despair. This title came to me that, that um, and I wrote it from that from that despair. It was like you know, it's really me against the world kind of song. But mm-hmm. I was able to capture some attitude. Say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not mm-hmm. giving. I'm not giving up. I'm gonna. I'm you know. I'm I'm calling. I'm kind of calling your bluff, world, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. so that was really that was I think the moment um, that I knew when I when I finished the song, and it took me a long time to finish it because the lyrics had to be right. Yeah. Um, I kind of knew that I'd um, maybe turned a corner in terms of yeah. my writing. Well, again, it resonates with basically everybody. I mean, it's it's one of those universal themes that everyone's had that moment, right? Where yeah, I think a, so. You know, 
Yeah, which is which is nice. So for you though, your goal when you started out, if you said I want to be, it sounds like you you had an affinity for songwriting, and that's if if you could sort of state your goal back when you were a teenager. I want to be a successful songwriter. Would that have been something you would have said back then? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think I think that was again, like I said, it was a it was a a, a compulsion. So I was going to do it one way or the other. But as soon as you start doing it, you start going, well, you know, maybe I'm not terrible at this. And well, where would that lead? And that would lead, of course, to getting up on a stage and, you know, playing my songs for people, other people. And and I think I always that's always where I was coming from was not that I was a songwriter, only a songwriter, but that I would be the the vehicle for these songs to get up. Right. But you played guitar for Charity Brown, right? It, that was was that you, one of your first earliest experiences of playing in a in a sort of a recording act that could do something. Yeah, yeah, and that comes back a little bit to what you were asking about a plan, and that is, no. and 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 I was, uh, I knew an, uh, one of the musicians actually. He was the uh, musical director for Charity. We knew each other, and uh, he offered me the gig. Mm. They they were they were they were about to go on tour can't remember i think the the previous band had kind of fallen apart that she was using and she was quite a big name in canada at the time yes absolutely uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so i signed up i didn't actually own an electric guitar i only oh, had well. acoustic guitars because yeah. i was kind of kind of more in my still in my sort of folky phase yeah and yeah. um got a bought a stratocaster from another friend that was a, a horrible guitar People think those guitars back in the day were great, but boy, this one wasn't. That's for sure. <laughs> but anyway, it it got I so I learned how to, and then I started learning how to play electric guitar, which is really a very different instrument. Yes, hundred percent. You got to play both a lot to get good at at both of them, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but but coming back to what you the question, I knew she had a record deal with A and M Records. I knew they were very active in Canada and signing Canadian artists. And I, it wasn't that I was really wanted to go on the road with charity, no, with all due respect to her, um, you know, for the next year and a half of my life. But I thought, well, maybe as again, I said, nobody was interested in my music. Maybe they'll hear, maybe she'll do one or two of my songs and then we'll hear the songs. Maybe they'll, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have some interest in what I'm doing. So there was a bit of a, the plan there, I suppose. Well, fair enough, because you're knocking on doors that are really difficult to open, right? You've got to find your way. You got to go around the building and find a door that's open. And if that's the one that's open, you go through that one and see what you can find in there. And obviously you did that. Exactly. And, yeah. and just so you know, I mean, I'd sent tapes, you know, the old cassette tapes in those days oh, yeah. uh, to, yeah. uh, to, uh, A&M and you know, they, they never heard back from, from them for some time. So, you know, I'd write a few songs, do a demo tape, Send it to them. Never, nobody ever got back to me. So yeah, this was like okay. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe this will work. Maybe at least they'll they'll hear one or two of my songs. Well, yeah, and good for you because it persistence, right? Because yeah, you're right. I mean, everybody was submitting tapes back then. That was the most common thing in the world. You were lucky to get a rejection letter. Most time it was just round filed and whatever. So you know, lots of those. You know, there's some famous uh, rejection letters that have been. <laughs> circulated of major bands that were turned down by record companies because they just didn't see the the value in what they could do right i I couldn't agree with you more than if you didn't if you didn't have a collection of rejection letters you were you know you were nobody basically i mean and uh and and i don't i really honestly don't know if someone who had a successful career in, in the music industry back then or even more recently that doesn't have all the stories about how everybody who told them you know what maybe you should be a school teacher or have yeah. you thought about dentistry yeah. or uh you know how about accounting or maybe you should just dig ditches i don't know but yeah you know i mean yeah. it's just it's just common to everybody who eventually gets some success with very few exceptions i think that uh you know you, you just and and you said something about persistence and i think i'd like to reinforce that too that you just have to stay at it and it's it's hard it's hard when people yeah. are saying, nah, you don't really have it for yeah. you to, you know, summon yeah. up that belief in yourself. But at the end of the day, that's, I think, maybe the number one, you know, I know a lot, a lot of people, I know a lot of incredibly talented people who, who weren't successful. Yeah. And I know people who were much less talented, but they were persistent and they just yeah. didn't give up and it worked out for them. Yeah. And then, so for you, you got, you got your foot in the door, but then you ended up getting a record deal and getting your album out Schwartz that came out in 78, I guess. But that, that's another step too. Cause it's one thing to get in the door and say, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I got some songs, but then to take the next step to get a deal and then get the album released. How did that go? 
Yeah, that was exactly, I mean, the, the plan that maybe uh, the, the label A&M would hear a few songs through charity actually is exactly what happened. She okay. did do a few of my songs and, uh, and they liked them and um, offered me a deal. So it, it, it was, um, you know, sometimes things work out the way you hope they will. Once you get um, a record deal, you very often get interest from publishers back in the day. There was a lot of independent publishers and there was one called ATV that got wind of me. I had a number of offers as soon as I had a record deal publishers. Started, so started offering me deals and I ended up signing with um, ATV who were a British company and they had a, a little band called the Beatles at the time. So they yes. had, <laughs> well, like so, they had enough money to sign guys like me. But from a, from a business perspective, that seems like counterintuitive nowadays because the record company would almost certainly want the publishing as well if you were doing that now. Is that correct? And they did. They, they, Irving Almo was the publishing um, sister company to A&M Records back in the day. And I did get an offer from Irving Almo. So yeah. uh, um, they're much more integrated today, though, I will say. They were run more like independent companies back in the day and you know we only have let's basically three major you know music companies now back in back in those days there were maybe eight nine ten right you know large companies that also had sister publishing companies so yeah yeah more more competition more and competition meant there was in a way more opportunity well and also the where the money's made it's the residuals and the and the, the licensing and that sort of thing i mean you can sell units all you want but that's sort of waned now right so they would want to have a what they call a 360 deal or some kind of a deal where they get a piece of everything you're absolutely right it's uh, it's yeah. a very different ball game and uh you know and there was at one time atv did want to recoup artists you know they did want to play that game and again uh, you know fortunately had a lawyer in la who Oh, At this point, I was, I was, um, things were happening for me, you know, both sides of the border. And I had a yeah. lawyer who, uh, I would have, I would have gladly signed a deal <laughs> with and let them recoup, uh, you know, yeah. artists against the uh, writer and all the stuff you're talking about. About how lawyers said, you know, yeah, we're not doing that because he understood what you did, what you just said, which is as a writer, um, you know, you can have other people do your songs, particularly in those days, and then have a revenue stream that would go to you. But yes. if you are sort of mortgaging that against your your your, your artist side, um, the chances of you actually recouping are much smaller. So yeah. I was just fortunate that I had somebody who really fought for me, oh, and good. they they we got a better deal that way. So yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. So the thing that struck me about you in in doing the research for this is that other people seem to like your songs. I mean, lots of people write songs, and there's been lots of artists that have put out you know dozens or hundreds even of songs, but hardly anybody else records them for you. It seems to be that people just like you, like your songs. Like you did, does a fool ever learn? And then Helix did a version of that, which is quite a cool version. But what, what is it about your songs? Do you think that, that other artists just listen to them and said, I got, I got to record that. I got to sing that. Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I, I'll, you know, refer back to an earlier part of the conversation where we, we had, uh, we're having today. And that is, I think the lyrics are relatable. You know, I try mm -hmm. to, I try to, you know, my mother used to say that all the time. And she used to say it about me, by the way. Yeah. My mother used to say, does a fool ever learn? Yeah. And I imagine her, her mother said it to her before because it's, you, of, you know, one of those things yeah. that got passed down, unfortunately, from generation to generation. But yeah. she used to, you know, I would do, yeah. I would, you know, in my formative years, do something. And she'd just look at me and say, does a fool ever learn? So mm -hmm. I guess, you know. Uh, I think the narrative, let's let's put it that way, the narrative, the story is is something that um, that people can relate to. And I think that has a lot to do with why I've been very fortunate yeah. and had some success in, in, in placing songs with other with other artists. So, and, you know, and the, the, I really work hard at it. I mean, I I want to write songs that other people that are accessible. Okay. Um, yeah. Not because I want to be, not because I want to be commercial, but because that's the joy I think in the exercise is finding a way to communicate something that's you know in your heart and your soul, and sharing it with other people. So yeah. that connection to 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 other human beings through the music is really important to me, and I yeah. and I I think that's that maybe is part of the answer. 
but for your catalog, it's it's disproportional compared to other artists. How many of your songs have been like all our tomorrows? You know, Joe Cocker does that. Like, was that presented to him, or did he just hear it so, one time? Have you got an active publishing team presenting songs to other artists or something? It just seems like there's so many. Yeah, back in the day, there certainly was a wonderful couple of, uh, in particular, song pluggers uh, yeah, okay. at ATV. Uh, Marv Goodman in New York was amazing. I owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. And uh, Sally Perriman was another woman. She was a woman in London. She got uh, Don't Shed a Cheer to Paul Carrick and, uh, and other, other, other uh, English artists. So, I, I mean, th- there was that with the cock, with Joe Cocker. I mean, I got a phone call from Dan Hartman. I don't know if you remember Dan Hartman. He was a, a tremendous artist and, um, and uh, art, artist and produ- producer back in the eighties and nineties passed away I died very young unfortunately but hmm. he was working hmm. on joe cocker record he and uh, charlie midnight his part his production partner and they couldn't find any songs so they were actively calling up writers and saying if you got something for joe cocker and i sent them all our tomorrows and they said we're cutting it and i went wow what an honor to have joe yeah joe do one of my yeah. songs and they said if you got anything else and i sent them another song called I stand and wonder. And they said, wow, we love this one too. We're cutting this too. So I ultimately got three nice. songs on, uh, on that record. And so, yeah, there, it was a, it, there was a lot more of that interchange between producers, uh, publishing companies, songwriters. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to go on and on about it, but I, I think the other important thing was there was enough, I know money's not a cool thing to talk about if you're an artist, but the truth is yeah. that you could just make a living writing songs yeah. In the seventies, eighties, nineties, that you could specialize in in just writing songs because there was enough money to support yourself doing it. That's that's gone away. That's not true anymore. And that and I think yeah. that's partly an answer why I don't think the songs are as good as they used to be. Yeah, fair point. But so in, in your career though, you were kind of on a parallel track, right? Because you're still putting out albums. You did No Refuge, I guess, in eighty one. You did Public Life in eighty four. Um, so you were kind of you know, you wanted to be your own guy too, right? You wanted to be a performer and you were out there. I'm, I'm assuming you were touring and, and had your own shows going and recording your own albums. Yeah, I, I wasn't touring. I did a little bit of touring. I did some touring behind some of the records, not as much as, as uh, some you know folks do. Because um, I was kind of torn. I mean, for, for me, the truth of the matter is that when you have people like Pat Benatar and Joe Cocker and Carly Simon and Rita Coolidge and all yeah. these other people doing your songs. It was, it made a lot of sense for me to spend time writing. Yeah. So, yeah. and I loved making my own records and Dave Tyson was very involved with some of them. And, uh, you know, other, other folks that I got to work with over the years, Larry Gowan, Lawrence Gowan and others. Yeah. But, um, I loved making the records, but the truth is that the writing side was, was where most of the activity was happening. Um, and so I was always drawn back to just trying to write, but you know, the thing is they all, they all work together in the sense that at some point I would have 12 songs that I thought were really good that I could do. Yeah. And, you know, and, and if a label was willing to finance me and go into the studio and record. So unfortunately I was very fortunate there, there were labels that, that, uh, would support that, uh, that enterprise. Yeah. But you make a good point, though. I mean, people like Pat Benatar, Joe Cocker, these are big personality, world-class, sort of, you know, very well-known. And then with the way Pat Benatar sings, hit me with your best shot. I mean, how do you get better than that? She's just phenomenal. So yep. you're not, you're not going to compete directly with that in, in terms of performance. No, right? I, I never I never could. Or, or, you know, Paul Carrick singing Don't Shed a Tear. I yeah. Mean, who can yeah. compete with that? Unreal. Um, I totally, I totally... I totally agree. I mean, those are, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm going up against Joe Cocker and Pat Benatar today. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, it was, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, God, how, uh, how fortunate I was that, that, uh, those, those were people that were attracted to my songs. Yeah. And did you get to meet them? Did you ever, did you get to meet Paul Carrick or Joe Cocker or Pat Benatar? I got to meet all three of them. Um, Pat very briefly. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, she was in Toronto. She was playing uh, on Danforth. Uh, what was the name of that? I, 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 I'm having a mental lapse here about the name of the yeah. of the venue. But I met her backstage, and nice. then I wrote with yeah. with Neil Giraldo, her husband. Uh, oh, nice. A little, little later on in in L.A., they invited me to come to their 
place there and write with uh, with uh, Neil. So I did that. I met Joe when he played in Toronto at Canada's. No, it was um, yeah, it was Canada's Wonderland. That's right. Okay. He played outside. Okay. He did an outdoor concert, and uh, it was wonderful. He gave me a big bear hug and nice and, and said, Eddie Schwartz, you've got soul, mate. <laughs> so that was another high point in my life, actually. Um, and Paul and I, yeah, we worked together. We wrote a song called I Live by the Groove together. And, uh, cool. and then I worked yeah. with him in New York on that record a little bit as well. Yeah, well, I wondered about that because, you know, when you write a song, like I think Lionel Richie said that about his songs are like his kids, you know, and then he lets them out there. And I guess Lady was recorded by um, Kenny Rogers, but he wrote that song. Wow. And so, uh, you know, so he's talking about that, but you, so you have a connection, you have this sort of intimate connection in a way, but then a lot of songwriters never get to meet the person who actually records their song. And I thought, yeah, it'd be kind of cool if you could just at least talk to him a little bit. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I consider, uh, you know, I mean, I idolized Paul Carrick, uh, oh, before I met him. Fantastic. In fact, in fact, when, when I was introduced to him, he was playing with Mike and the Mechanics in in Hamilton, Ontario, and I went and I had his previous album and I, I walked up to him and, and Don't Shed a Tear was, I think, in the top 10 in Billboard at the time. And I walked up to him and said, uh, hi, would you mind, uh, you know, a huge fan, would you mind signing the record? Like I was, you know, sort of, and, and I was one of many people waiting to get him to sign their record. And he said, sure, who should I make it out to? And I said, Eddie Schwartz. And he just looked up at me and said, "You bastard!" Oh, wow. because <laughs> and I was I was taken a I was taken aback, yeah. and uh, I said, "Oh, that's a strange reaction." And he said, "He said, well, how many songs did you get on the last Joe Cocker record?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, well, I have three. And he said, "Well, you bastard!" That's, that was that was the conversation. And then well, after we we spent a lot of time together, and as I said, we worked on oh, good. Uh, wrote oh, and worked on a record together. So. Well, he was probably thinking you could have got in the stage door if you'd asked, right? <laughs> you wouldn't have had to well, wait in line. That's that's true, but I wanted I wanted the full the full impact, and I was really yes. hoping he'd say, "Who do I make it out to?" So I could say, <laughs> you know, oh, be, anyway. Yeah, yeah. but no, again, good. what a what a what a monster talent! I mean, it's oh, yeah. just well, it's incredible. Yeah, so so you obviously the transition was sort of natural for you, but then you did uh, tour to Schwartz in 1995. So I listened to that, like Bourbon Street and Every Road I Take. So I listened to those, and you kind of changed a little bit because I listened to the earlier albums and, and a bunch of tunes off of that, and your your style kind of changed a little bit there. Your your voice is a little rootsier, raspier. You got the acoustic. I think you're tuned down a semitone and, and maybe even drop D in there if I am hearing that correctly. And it's it's cool. I, I, it, did you purposely change your style or did you is that just part of the evolution of what you were doing personally? Well, Dan, the fact that you knew that it was a drop D is like, first of all, let me kudos, um, you know, credit where credit's due. That's amazing. Yeah. Like I said, going back to my early folk, I think it was really a return on some level to the folk you know, my folk roots that, that where I started out with acoustic guitar. Um, I'd also had, had two young children at the time. I had kids yeah. starting, you know, I had, uh, you know, was, I had a family that, uh, that I, and that was, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but yeah, they're growing I, up now, you know, yeah. and, and mine are as well, but yeah. um, yeah. it changes everything. And, for you sure. know, and, and for the, and uh, instead of it just being about me, you know, and, you know, as, I mean, you know, in the music business, show business, you're selling yourself. Um, you know, you're, you've got to be the focus, and you, you know, for better or for worse, good ways, bad ways. But um, I had a family, so I was I was in a very different place, and I think, yeah, I was reconnecting with uh, that those earlier, you know, Pete Seeger, Dylan. I mean, I did it my own way. It wasn't I wasn't copying them, but I think I think it was a return to uh, in some ways. So it was a little, yeah, it's kind of folk rocky. I think it's got some elements of stuff that I did uh, in the 80s, uh, but, uh, you know, largely in many ways also came back to that folk. Well, I, I like uh, it. I think it works great. I mean, the, the earlier stuff has lots of synth and lots of patches and, you know, the layered harmonies and stuff. And that's all cool. It's very 80s sounding, a lot of it. But this sounds, um, like I said, just a little more raw, a little more rootsy and, and more sort of... Um, uh, less refined, I guess, in one way, but more refined in another way, in the sense that it comes across really well. That's that was my impression of it, anyway. Oh, I really appreciate that, Dan. Thank you. And I, I, I should again a shout out to Dave Tyson. 
you know, in the 80s, we worked together. Dave is an incredible keyboard player. Uh, mes- mesmerizing just to listen to how you know the, his voicings and how he uses keyboards. So I think I was very influenced by him as an arranger in the eighties. And of course, it was the era of that you know of uh, synths and keyboards, and which of course we've come back to a lot of that stuff in more recent times. Uh, so I, I think again, without his influence on the, on the keyboard side, um, it, it brought me back to the acoustic guitar. And then of course, as, as we said earlier, that's a whole different just playing an acoustic guitar takes you to a whole different place musically. Yeah. So I think there was a lot of, I think that sure. there's a lot to do with, uh, with your insight there. Yeah. Well, and years ago, a guy said to me, you know, you can tell a good song if a guy can just pick up an acoustic guitar and sing it and play it and you like it. That's a decent song. That's yep. A, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. Good. Good. Yeah, way try to, to do that with a, a lot of the stuff you're hearing on TikTok. They just tried to do it on acoustic guitar. Although mm-hmm. there's some, there's a lot of that. I shouldn't be quite that uh, dismissive, yeah, I right. suppose. I agree, though, in, in general, I think that's true. And so for songwriting, well, let me ask you a little bit about songwriting. Like it, it, it seems like, um, like a natural sort of knack that you have. And of course you had an affinity toward, towards it, but, um, how much of it was, was natural and how much is learned or refined? I that's guess. a really, really good question. Um, it's, it's hard to separate it. I think, you know, and, and again, we were talking about knowing two chords, three chords, I'm, you know, and I want to like. I just got back from Brazil. I was at a at a music conference about, you know, we were talking about the music, the world of music today, which is much more difficult for young, young uh, creators, music creators. It's a it's a much more uh, as hard as it was then, and it was very daunting then. It's even more daunting now. So I, you know, spend time trying to advocate for a better, you know, better world for music songwriters and composers and, yeah. and artists. And I just got back from Rio and I got, I was exposed to a lot of Brazilian music yeah. um, uh, because a lot of the people who attended the conference were, were, were music creators from that part of the world. And it just blew me away. Uh, and, and, and now I'm going to sit down and try to learn, you know, the way they, the, 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 their, their approach, they, they are definitely not three chords in the truth. Yeah. The truth may be there, but the chord, there's a lot more chords going on. Right. Yeah. And uh, you think about, you know, girl from Ipanema and, so it's sort of very jazz oriented and so but but the, the thing that I find is that that all ends up helping my songwriting because yeah, fair enough. It, it's not like I'm gonna ever sound like a Brazilian, you know, as a as a Canadian. I I, I don't think I'm ever gonna be looking to do what they do, but but no. but being influenced by what they do is inspiring. So fair you enough, learn yeah. different changes, different chord progressions. And those inspire you to um, to write. So I think it's a combination of both. I think always good to push yourself to learn new things and to be open to learning new things so you don't get into a rut, but then you integrate them into what you do that's unique and different, hopefully. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and and find, find your own voice. Use them to find your own voice maybe a little differently than you've done before. Yeah. Well, and your overriding point is a good one because we've had tons of influences at the time that you grew up and that I grew up. I'm probably 10 years behind you, but um, all the influences, I mean, from Led Zeppelin to, you know, James Taylor to all the 40s and 50s, the black influence. Like, I mean, if you if you had to list off all the influences you've had, it would take you three days because there's so many, but it was such a magical time. And you take all of that and make your own sort of concoction of all of that, those influences. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we all we all stand on the shoulders of of giants. Yes. Um, and uh, we're so fortunate, uh, you know, that that the, the how rich, how rich and deep the musical history of our culture is, and that's just on the popular music side. Never mind the whole, you know, classical. Uh, and then you know, again, traveling to some of these uh, different parts of the world for advocacy to you know fight for better copyright laws, uh, you know. And, yep. and better remuneration. Yeah, yeah I did you know, see I that. Get exposed, yeah. yeah, I get exposed to so many, you know, uh, J- Japanese music and Korean music. I mean, it's wow. we, it's an extraordinarily rich world of music we live in, and and we're so fortunate, yeah, uh, to have that. Very cool. And you were the president of the Songwriters Association, uh, the Canadian Songwriters Association. And uh, I, I've interviewed, I've had on the on the program, I've had Christopher Ward and John. Capek or Capek as most people pronounce it. Mark Jordan was on with me and those two were just inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I guess you were in 2019. Is that right? 
I was. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to Mark yesterday, by the way, and I, oh, good. you know, we, so well deserved, so well deserved for these guys to, uh, yeah, to get that that honor. And and uh, yeah, I mean, the, Mark, these guys are the real deal. I mean, what a what an amazing talent. So yeah, I was really impressed with him, but he's he's sort of introverted. Like he's not. Um not really an outgoing sort of person. So he's a little bit understated, I guess I would say, but he made a really interesting point because I said to him, well, it must feel cool, you know, to write a hit song. And he goes, you know, Dan, I didn't write a hit song. I wrote a song that became a hit song. And it was a really interesting yeah. distinction, right? Because he said, there's a whole machine that has to take place behind because rhythm of my heart, I guess, sat around for 10 years, right? He had written it and it finally got to Rod Stewart. But I thought that was a pretty interesting because, you know, maybe the the average person would think, well, you just write a great song and it becomes a hit song. And, and that's really not what happens. And it has to be presented. So it's written, but it has to be presented and then promoted in the right way is, I guess, what his point was. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I, I and, I, and I, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't sit down to write hit songs. Never. No. I never have. Uh, and, you know, people have come to me, including, you know, uh, Paul came, Paul Carrick said, well, you know, you you write hit songs. And I go, I just try to write good song. I mean, you know, I mean, Rhythm of My Heart's a fantastic song. And it just sounds like something that, you know, has always been. It's It's got that sound like there's Beatles songs I've heard for the first time and gone. That sounds like something that always existed. Yes. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, when you do your job as a songwriter well, as Mark does time and time again yes um you know people have there's a lot of investment you know in time and energy that goes into making to your point then to make goes into making a good song or a great song a hit song yeah and and all of a sudden now you're on the industrial you know the industry side of the equation i guess industrial is not quite the right word but in the industry side of the yeah, equation sure. which is all which is a whole other you know, a whole other world from the creative is one thing, the music industry, the music business, radio, promotion, you know, it's just a whole other, yeah. uh, you know, ball of wax you have to get your head around. Um, and I think guys like Mark and, and I, I'm, I'm, I just, it's about the music for me. The, the, the industry itself is not something that really, you know, I never subscribed to Billboard. I never like was like watched the charts to see what was going on. Yeah. Um, but there are people, there are, there are people who do, and there's people that's their job. Their job well, is. Well, they're, they're mercenary about it, right? I mean, some people it's, it's just cut it, wrap it, freeze it, get it out there. I don't care what it is. Songwriting teams come up with some hooks. We don't care. Record it, get a producer in here. Let's get this out to the people. Um, that goes again, like the, the singer songwriter people are the ones that, you know, the, the Joni Mitchells, the Gordon Lightfoots who write from their heart, what they're feeling and stuff that, that to me is the heart of songwriting, not, not the manufactured sort of songs. Would, would you uh, agree with that? I, I totally would agree with that. I mean, there are people that I know that, whose name will remain unmen, un, you know, that I will not uh, mention their names out of respect to them. And, and they're very good at what they do. They take, it is kind of a met like a manufacturing process. They take what they uh, think are, you know, are just one hook after the other. And, and um, you know, they know how to package it. They know how to glue them all together and package it. And, and they, they've been very successful. Some of those people have yeah. had many, many yeah. hit records. The ones that I think really resonate and stay around for years that have a life beyond the immediate, you know, hot 100 and billboard are the ones that, uh, that you, you know, there's a reason why we're talking about Joni Mitchell today and, right. you know, Neil Young and James Taylor. And it's because they tapped into universal, you know, universal human truths and things that are important to all of us and will always be important. So, well, and that's what, what John had made that point. John Kapak, when I had him on, he said he's trying to write anthems, but anthems are really hard to write because, you, you know, songs like Let It Be or Hey Jude, I mean, those, those are rare. Yeah, and and that and that goes speaks to your other point about the business. It's like an, an anthem only becomes an anthem when it re reaches a certain level of success. I would mm -hmm. I would think. Um, but I understand where you know that's something that, that John you know that's he that's what drives him. Yeah. He's writing those kinds yeah. of songs. That's the kind of music he loves. Yeah. So I understand when got, completely. When you got a whole stadium singing na 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 na, I mean everybody wants to write <laughs> one of those, right? <laughs> So do you uh, do you think there could ever be another Beatles? Uh, I really hope so. I really, really, really hope that generations to come, 
and maybe uh, you and I, before we leave this planet, we'll we'll live through a time when we've got something that's that special. Yeah. It, it was really looking back. It was really a golden age for a lot of the reasons we've talked about, and of course the talent, the yeah. enormous talent. Just just Paul McCartney alone um, as a bass player, as an arranger, as a singer, as a songwriter. Uh, and then you've got John Lennon. I mean, you know, again, just enormous. Well, yeah. All of them were so talented, and the, and and and, but they, boy, the the story, the backstory to how they became the, the group that we know as the Beatles is, you know, playing those those bars in uh, in Hamburg, Germany, and yeah. you know, eight eight hours of gigs every night for a week on end, seven <laughs> days a week. Yeah. So, how much of what you did? Or even what they did, but how much of it do you think is that a, is that a function of the time or the the era that we grew up in? Like, could you do what you what you did then? Could you do that today? Well, I, I think that's a very perceptive question, and the answer is, I think no, I don't think I could. I think you know, people say you're lucky. I, I get that a lot. I get that you know, and it's a little irksome to me because you know, I really worked my butt off mm-hmm. to get lucky. You know, <laughs> it was like, yeah. No. yeah. And nothing, nothing falls into my lap, and I don't think anything falls in the most in this business. Yeah, very few people have you know things just 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 automatically go the right way. And uh, so I worked my you know worked really really hard for many years before I had uh, you know some success. But I was lucky to come back to your question. I was lucky because of when I was born. Right. I mean, right. I I just happened to to be at at what I think will will be considered one of the golden ages of certainly popular music and you know I, what, what conditions what are the what 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 will be the conditions that will create that kind of period of opportunity and creativity again yeah. and it's uh, a lot of things have to come together a lot of different elements well and for something like the beatles is probably the quintessential example but i mean the um, the melodies that emerge from those i mean walking by a sign that says penny lane and then and then they're singing penny lane there is a da, 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 da. i mean that that's there's something magical there that that i'm not sure is on that scale is repeatable you know where a band would come out and and that many melodies would emerge from a two guys four guys essentially but two two primarily I'm not sure that could happen again it's possible i suppose but don't know yeah no i think that's a good point and especially of course everyone is in the uh, talking about generative ai that was a big yes. topic of conversation yes. at, at uh, this recent conference i was at and um what's what what will be the role of actual human beings in making music going forward is now something that's getting a lot of attention and a lot of discussion and a lot of a lot of people are afraid that you know, it'll all the machines will be making all our music. Um, well, know, is that and, inevitable? And, 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 Don't you think that's inevitable? Well, it, it, I think it's already happening, but um, I, I really, really hope it's not. I guess the way that I think about it, uh, and and this is something we've been discussing, is you know, you walk into a supermarket today, and you've got the regular section of food and vegetables, and then you've got the organic section and you know over the years that organic section at least a lot of places has grown and grown and grown till the point where it's just as big as the you know you know the sort of industrial farmed foods and i kind of think i wonder if that's not maybe that's a hopeful way of looking at the future maybe there will be a place for industrial music that will serve a certain purpose you know maybe if you just want something in the background that you know you that doesn't uh, take much attention and isn't something you want to engage with other than just something in the background. Maybe, um, you know, generative AI will take over that type of music, but maybe there'll also be a world and a market and a craving for organic quote unquote music that's made by human beings. You know, I hope that's right. I guess my thought of it is that the consumer really doesn't care. I mean, the the consumer is a pass fail. I like that song. Oh, well that's AI general. I don't care. I like the song doesn't matter. And if that takes over then, and then the other thing that I, I like to ask is like, is there a saturation? I asked John this question, but is there a saturation point? I mean, we use 12 notes. Okay. You got octaves and stuff, but we use 12 notes. How many new melodies can there be? And now AI will be able to scan all the existing melodies and then fill in all the other ones sort of as a machine. So is there a saturation point for the songwriter at some point? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an open question. I mean, I, I hear where you're coming from, and and uh, 
sounds slightly pessimistic, frankly, but uh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> or or maybe even a little more than slightly. But look, yeah, the, these machines are going to be able to put together the pieces uh, in ways that we we can't imagine, and uh, it is maybe it's possible that they will that the music they'll come up with will be so ast- you know astounding that people will just go, uh, yeah, I can't compete with that. That's just too good. Yeah. I, I think, again, let me come back to a bit of a theme uh, that I, you know, for today's conversation, which is the lyrics. I think that may be more of a challenge. And I, okay. I don't know that AI will be able to write, a, write brilliant lyrics. And, and by the way, I mean, I, I, I'm doing an EP now. I'm doing some recording. I haven't done some, any, any in a while, but I am doing some now. And I went to chat GPT. Uh, because I got stuck on a lyric, yeah, and I spent quite a bit of time putting in the theme of the song, and you know, just feeding it, feeding the beast, yeah, and yeah. and I think I did it three times, and and every time it it spit out three different versions of possible lyrics, and I I can tell you I didn't use a single a single word or a single line, right. So um, I don't think it's there yet, but you know what? By this time next year, who knows? Yeah, well, that's it's it's the genies out of the bottle now is is kind of the way I look at it. I think it's more realistic than pessimistic. I would say I was just because I've I've had this conversation with a few people, and you know I'm just thinking in terms of the consumer, the consumer doesn't really care. You can make the generic argument or the organic argument, but if somebody likes something, they're they're not really going to care. And I, I don't think anyway. And then the other question I was going to ask you is about plagiarism. Like, uh, have you ever had any issues with that? I mean, some of the country songs are so generic now and, and the blues tunes, you know, I, I hear people suing other people because their melody's too close. And I'm thinking, have you listened to blues songs? There's blues songs that are the same song. There's a thousand songs that are the same songs. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the whole, this whole, uh, you know, uh, Ed Sheeran, you know, uh, madness, uh, and, and the, and then the blurred lines thing yeah. that came a few years crazy. ago. It, it is crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, uh, you know, it's driven by lawyers who, you know, see an opportunity and by courts who don't understand what copyright is. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that you, the only thing you can copyright the, is the music and the lyrics, right. not the groove and the grooves, these grooves and the changes you're talking about have been used 10,000, 100,000, a million, 10 million. I mean, who, I mean, it's, it's really quite insane. And, you know, I was, I, I wrote an article, um, uh, when it's Sheeran won his case recently and, um, now it's under appeal. Mm -hmm. So the nightmare for him isn't over. And it, it is a kind of a nightmare. I mean, I sympathize with somebody you sit down and you write a song and sure, as we said earlier, you, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, but you can still come up with something that's unique. Yeah. And, uh, and I think he did that. And here he is like years and years of litigation, which costs, you know, yeah. so much money yeah. and takes up so much of your emotional space. I know he's been very, dis- you know, I, I understand he's been distraught over it. I don't blame him. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really a, it's a very unfortunate development. That, but in uh, the blurred lines case, he lost that case, right? Yeah. And, and that's a terrible precedent. And I think that's yes. driving a lot of these other, driving a lot of these other lawsuits now that, that that uh, precedent was in place. That's why I was encouraged when Sharon won, you know, won his case yeah. because I thought maybe that'll put it to bed, but uh, they're appealing. So who knows? knows well, and then in the case of forever young with Rod Stewart, right? I guess Bob Dylan called him up and said, you know, you kind of lifted my song here a little bit. So I think they made a deal and made a 50, 50 deal or something. I don't know the details of that. Yeah, there, there, and I know of other situations like that where people have just the writers have just communicated directly and said, "Okay, you're right." Yeah. It didn't have to go to court, um, but I, I, I feel much better about those kinds of uh, resolutions to these problems than these these uh, you know lawyers who are dragging people to court for years and years and years. Well, and it's so selective because, I mean, like I said, well, you're living in Nashville, but I mean, you could, you know, my wife puts on the country station and I mean, the melodies, I mean, those are so generic. It's unbelievable. I'm thinking, well, that song's been written hundreds of times. I couldn't agree with you more. And I've got to say, uh, it's always, you know, the blues and country again, they're, you know, because they are not as ambitious in terms of the chord changes you're getting a lot of uh, a lot of 
you know, overlap between different songs yeah. um, for sure. Um, but country right now is very formulaic in my humble opinion. Yes. Very formulaic. You seem to hear the same thing over and over and over. So you I, do, I, and, and people are afraid to break any new ground because to get on the stations, you got to sound like kind of like everybody else. Yeah, and it's it's the one format that still really is driven by radio play, mm-hmm. uh, because you know there still are you can still break a new artist on on, on radio. Yeah, it doesn't really happen very often uh, for for the other genres of music. But yeah, I mm-hmm. I, I hear you. I mean, and I, the, you know the stations, it's being driven by advertising. You know, by advertising by what the advertisers want from radio. You know what I mean? It's all, in other words, in the old days, you know, the, the, the label would go to the radio station and say, Hey, we got this new guy named Jimi Hendrix. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. Exactly. You've got to play it. Yeah. And somebody somewhere would start playing it. And then the phones would light up and they'd go, wow, like every people are loving this. And then the station across town would start playing it because they knew, you know, how well it was doing at the other station. And all of a sudden you have somebody like Hendrix explode. Those days yeah. are gone. I mean, it, the yeah. consolidation of radio, there's, you know, a few companies own all the stations. It's all programmed yeah. probably by artificial intelligence somewhere. Yeah. So there you go. But but also a young person asked me one time, what was it about the seventies? Every week there were songs coming out that I knew I was going to love for the rest of my life, but they weren't copycat songs. You could have a Steely Dan, Can't Buy a Thrill comes out, sounds great. But then Skinnerd puts out, you know, a down and dirty Southern rock album and they're on the same station. And I love both of them equally. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The the fact that there was everything is so segmented now and separated, and it's in those days you could you could go from uh, R and B to heavy rock to instrumental, uh, all different yeah. genres, you yeah. know, and and Brazilian music. I mean, girl from Ipanema, yeah. you know, on the same station that might play uh, exactly. Yeah. No, that's good. Well, I wanted to get your insights on that because I've I've had my observations and I kind of wonder where the whole music, and for you, you're right on the cusp of that, like sort of looking at the landscape and where everything's going and how that's going to get sorted out. And and I guess it's a bit of a mystery for you too, because you're not sure where it's headed. No, and I, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. Uh, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think you made some really good points about music, you know, just I'm putting it in different words, but you know, music occupies a different place in the lives of most people hmm. than it did when when I was a kid growing up, and it sounds like that's true for you as well. Yeah, it just yeah. it just occupied a different place. It was, you know, you, it, I wasn't it wasn't competing with video games. It wasn't competing with you know streaming uh, TV services. You know, and if you were a teenager in the you know when I was in the seventies, sixties, seventies. Music was just your life. I mean, it was just so important Absolutely. to who you were and yeah. how you defined yeah. yourself, and to, and in terms of the social, you know, the the whole cultural and the, the problems, political world we lived in. It was just relevant. It was very relevant. Well, and AM radio it's, it's a, was the center of the universe for getting new songs and stuff. And you know, I mean, I I play acoustic shows all the time, but I with I do band shows as well. But I mean the acoustic stuff, I do mostly seventies, James Taylor, Jim Crochet, Gordon Lightfoot, Cat Stevens, all that stuff. And I just love all that stuff. And it, it was just as you say, like the center of the universe in a in a sense. And AM radio and then eventually FM radio as well was really, really monumentally important in a way that it probably will never, I don't think will ever be again. Yeah. I think you're I I, I certainly think you're right. Um I, I'm, you know, and it is kind of sad, but you know, it's sad because we experienced that. I, you know, you know, my kids never experienced the world like that. Although I will say they listened to an enormous amount of music from back in the day. You know, my, <laughs> my, my daughter loves, <laughs> loves fifties music. She plays music that I hadn't heard before from the fifties nice. and sixties nice. and seventies and eighties. And, uh, you know, and, yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing how many of the younger generation listen to that music. And I think this, I hope I got this right, but it's something like 85% of what people listen to on Spotify is legacy music. It's not the new stuff. The new stuff yeah. is 15%. I think I got that number right. So that, that gives you some idea of the longevity and the the, the strength and the power of, of that era that we, you know, we were lucky enough to live through in the well, music. And- 
yeah. And I brought my kids up. They all listened to, we used to go on road trips and we'd listen, we had a beach boys tape that we had, and I'd teach them all the harmonies and we'd sing the harmonies to the beach boys driving down the highway. So, you know, when they listen to that stuff that they resonate with that completely, that's their music in a sense, because I made it their music. <laughs> Good for you. First of all, <laughs> and that's, that's great stuff to li- yeah. That's great. They'll teach the kids the harmonies. That's, that's really spectacular. Yeah. That that's was a great idea. Yeah. That was lots of fun. So it's funny when I first started doing this podcast a few years ago, now I used to ask people, how has the music business changed over the past 50 years? And of course, everybody just laughed and goes, it's a completely different universe. So what do you do now? You got an EP coming out. How, how are you going to get that out there? What's the world look like for you these days? Boy. Well, if you've got any ideas, let me know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I, there's a, a friend of mine who lives in, in the UK, who's uh, way more knowledgeable about this stuff than I am. And I, he's going to give me a, you know, going to help me, but nice. I mean, right now I'm just trying to finish the music. I, I just before this, I was, I ran back home to do this, uh, our interview. So, uh, because I was in the studio working uh, on a track, yeah. uh, with, uh, Roger Mutno, who's a wonderful engineer, producer, and musician here in Nashville. Nice. Yeah, I you know Dan, I don't know. I my my feeling is I'm going to you know put some time and effort into uh, my own website that will have my music on it, and I may or may not put it in the hands of somebody. If somebody comes along and says, "Well, you know," then there are a lot of companies now that that help with promotion right. online. I mean, I I will tell you what I won't be doing is is being on TikTok every 20 minutes. Yeah, uh, you know, with uh, one of my uh, you know walking with my phone somewhere and yeah, I, I, I don't know how much, I mean, I may do a little bit of social media, but I just don't think I could do that. I, I, I don't know how people spend so much of their lives on social media. I don't know that it's healthy for them or for anybody. Yeah. So well, uh, fair enough, but, I guess. but it works for some people. So well, I guess go. their argument would be, you know, you, you had the music business when you were growing up and that's how you did it in your early years. And now our reality is this. So I've got to go with that. But for me, I've, I've said to like, I just produced, uh, did an album, Mike Fraser produced an album for me that's going to be out soon. And I just said, I'm just going to ride it out old school. I'm an old school guy. I'm not going to change lanes at this point in my life. I'm good. If this is as good as it gets, I'm happy. So I'm just going to ride it out old school. Maybe that's a defeatist way to look at it, but it's realistic for me. No, I love it. I think that's, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I, I, uh, um, I made, you know, a little nod here and there to the more modern world, but you know, as, as I said earlier, it's really about making the music. Yeah. That's to me, that's the high point. The high point is listening to a finished song, you know, working with Roger in the studio, listening to a song for the first time and going, well, you know, I, I feel good about that. I'm proud yeah. of that. You know, it was a great experience creating that piece of music. And if that's all it is, then I'm, I, I'm going to have to be okay with it. And I am. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, it sounds like you're a pretty happy person, pretty comfortable in your own skin. So the music business didn't eat you up as it has as some people. Well, I appreciate that comment. And uh, it's no small feat. It has eaten up a lot of people. And I've got to say, Dan, that I took um, five years off and I'm just coming out of that now. Okay. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it's a very tough business. It it, it does, uh, you know, eat you up and spit you out to some extent. So I had to take some time off. Now, yeah. I've been writing songs since I was, as I said earlier, 12 or 13 years old, almost continuously. So maybe it was time to take some time off, you know, in any case. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It, what it's, did you do? It's, it's, yeah, I've, got, I've gotten very much involved in the advocacy side of things. I wanted okay. to still be, to do something useful. So, um, you know, the, what the streaming services pay songwriters and artists is so pathetically small. Um, the divisions within the industry of, of who gets what I think are, are not, are not really, uh, f- what they should be for a fair, you know, industry. Yeah. Well, so, so I've put a lot of time and effort into, uh, into, you know, advocating on behalf of, uh, songwriters, composers, and artists. And, you know, we've had some, we've, we've had a few, uh, a few successes that I feel good about. So, so that's well, what quick, I've quick question to follow up on that is who sets the rates? Is that arbitrary? Does Spotify say, well, we're going to pay you 0.00, you know, whatever per song. Is that arbitrary? They just, they set it. Well, there's negotiations. It's a, it's a complicated yeah. question. In some cases yeah. there are negotiations, but you know, the, 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 the record labels, um, in some cases they can negotiate. Whereas, strangely enough, on the songwriter side of the equation, 
it, the government mandates the amount that's that's uh, that can be allocated oh, for song for song. Yeah. So it's really not a level playing field. I mean, if you can, you know, if you're um, one of the the major companies, you can go to Spotify and say, well, you you don't get our catalog, which includes all of these incredible artists, unless you pay us a certain amount. Right. On the writer side, the government says, no, this is how much you're getting. You know, I mean, if you were to be able to go to the go to the same services and say, well, you don't get all these songs unless you pay a fairer rate. Well, that's more of a level playing field, but that's not the world we live in in many countries right now. So it's uh, we're getting, we're making more progress in Europe, actually. The, the laws are a little better there. Anyways, it's, it's, it's really complicated. It's complicated. Both globally. I appreciate that. I just, yeah. yeah. Well, the reason I asked that is because some, somebody posted the other day that the guy that owns Spotify is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, never written a song in his life. Well, and was, a, was, was a, the guy who started one of the big pirate companies uh, you know the big yeah. pirate companies back in the day so there you go <laughs> yeah he's he's not exactly uh necessarily all that popular with those of us yeah. who make music but yes uh, there you go all right well thanks for your thoughts on that i appreciate it we kind of went all over the place in the conversation but i you're an interesting guy and i really wanted to have you on so i could uh, pick your brain a little bit and ask you about some of this stuff from you know somewhat of an insider perspective and uh, from a music perspective as well well dan i really appreciate it thank you and um yeah i i I'm very grateful to you know the research you did on this. It, yeah. It's really great when someone comes to a, an interview and they have some some idea of uh, you know your history. So I really appreciate that very much, and yeah. it's been really good talking. Many thanks to my guest Eddie Schwartz for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his many musical adventures and accomplishments. More information will be available at eddieschwartz.ca as he gets that uh, website up and running. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.